listening to the Sean of the South podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dietrich. This week we're coming to you from the courthouse in Monroeville, Alabama, a famous place that served as a centerpiece for Harper Lee's literary work, To Kill a Mockingbird. The Taste of Monroeville is a festival which features local artists and craftsmen and vendors selling their wares downtown on the square. Inside the courthouse are wood floors, wooden pews, and a balcony, a judge's desk, and a small chair, which is where people delivered their testimonies long, long ago. With me today are the Mid-City Aces, New Orleans' own Cajun band, led by 18-year-old prodigy accordionist Cameron Dupuy, his father, Michael Dupuy, and Gina Forsyth on the string fiddle. Mid-City Aces, led by 18-year-old accordionist Cameron Dupuy, are going to play for you a traditional Cajun waltz.
went to my mother's house early in the morning. She had made breakfast for me. She was an expert at making breakfasts that people have forgotten how to make. For instance, when she cooked her eggs, she cooked them the right way. There is a right and a wrong way to cook eggs. Cooking eggs the wrong way, over medium per se, is to crack an egg on a skillet, wait for it to cook just a little, and then flip it. No, no. You must use enough lard and bacon grease that you don't have to flip the egg. You just spoon a little bit of a hot bacon grease on top of the white until it, the snot disappears. And then you serve it upside down. My mother serves eggs this way. She also makes biscuits that are about as big as your head and soft enough to be used in pillow fights. She uses basic ingredients, lard, white flour, salt, and baking soda. And adding anything else to this mixture would be like drawing a mustache on the Mona Lisa. And while I ate biscuits across from her, she looked over at me and she said, I'm going bankrupt. Then she picked up the orange juice pitcher and she filled my glass and said, would you like any more juice? I said, what was that you just said? She said, I asked if you'd like any more juice. I said, no, before that. She said, I'm going bankrupt. I said, how could this happen? And I watched my mother collapse in her chair and put her face into her hands. The only times in my life prior to that that I had really heard my mother cry were on two occasions. Once when a bumblebee flew into her ear and stung her out by the woodpile. And the second time was when Conway Twitty died. <laughs> my mother loves Conway Twitty and she loves the racy songs that he sings. I'm lying here beside her with Linda on my mind. Or there was a tiger in them tight-fitting jeans. My mother loves that song. It almost got her booted out of the Baptocostal church when she crawled into her blazer and turned it on, and that song was blaring out the window. My mother loved Conway Twitty, and this woman who had been so healthy all my life, the woman who could have cried on the day of my father's funeral but didn't because she knew that it would be a detriment to us children. She knew that it would make us cry. So she held her face as stone and solid as any time I've ever seen her. She held her face solid even when the preacher walked through the line, Brother Ernie. Brother Ernie was a man who weighed about 400 pounds, and he had a pure white hair. He was the son of a wheat farmer. He had left the church after stealing the church blind with his secretary, and he settled in South Florida. He had developed quite a name for himself, but when my father died, he wanted to be there for the funeral. He came walking down the aisle, and the people in the room looked at Brother Ernie, and you could hear their thoughts. There's that godless preacher who stole the church blind. He walked straight to the line. He shook my mother's hand. He shook my hand, he looked me in the eye, just like a grown man, and he said, you might be hearing a lot of things. People talk when there's a suicide, and they say terrible things about where your loved one might be. He said, but I want you to know something. I don't believe that there's any unforgivable sin except one. And he walked through the line, 
My mother, she was just a steady, steady woman with firm hands. She lost a little bit of weight after my father died. She locked herself in her bedroom and she would not come out. She was not hungry for several years. I knew I had to do something. I knew I had to do something to help her. But I couldn't articulate it. And while we sat there, she pushed her plate toward me. And it reminded me of the days that she had lost her appetite long, long ago. And she said, I'm not hungry. Do you want my biscuit? And I could not focus on what was being said to me. My mother, bankrupt, no money. What would we do? And there were no two ways about it. You bet your ass I wanted her biscuit. The next day I got on Craigslist and I looked and I scoured the internet. I had $3,000 which I had borrowed from my wife's father. $3,000 to buy a home. The cheapest travel trailer I found was in New Orleans, Louisiana. It was a FEMA trailer advertised a 30-foot ambulatory home with working toilet. Well, it's not every day you see a trailer with a working toilet that is a 30-foot ambulatory roaming home. I got into my car, and I left straight for New Orleans. I sped through, and I had with me a Conway Twitty CD. I placed it into my CD player, and I listened to it. Hello, darling. Glad to see you. And I thought about my mother. I thought about the times we had struggled to make ends meet. Everybody seems to have a story, and I wondered when, when we would get our chance. I rolled into Louisiana, and I slept in the back seat of my truck. I followed the directions to a small community that was nothing but double wides and these shotgun houses that had seen better days. The first person I saw was carrying a brown paper bag and sipping from it. He weighed about a buck ten, and his eyes looked like they were sunken back as far as his brain. When I finally got to the place where the FEMA trailer was for sale, there was a man on the porch, and he was sitting shirtless with about ten other people. His daughter was braiding her sister's hair, and her sister was braiding her sister's hair. And as soon as they saw my truck pull into their little area, he jumped off the porch and ran to me, and I noticed he had a little handgun tucked on the front of his trousers. And he said, who in the hell are you? I said, sir, I'm here to inquire about the FEMA trailer. He said, what FEMA trailer? And I thought, dear God, they're going to find my body. I said, sir, the roaming 30-foot ambulatory FEMA trailer with the working toilet. Oh, that 30-foot ambulatory FEMA trailer with the working toilet. Yes, sir. He walked me to the door. He opened it, and the door seemed pretty loose. It came right off. Fell on the ground. The trailer was covered in green mold. If you were to draw your name in it, you'd still hit another layer of mold behind that layer of mold. I kicked the tires and they were dusty. I walked into the trailer and the, the small fold-out couch smelled like cat pee. And there was a fine bouquet of mold growing on the ceiling inside. 
but by God, it had a working toilet. He'd gone to Home Depot to buy that thing, and it worked beautifully. Four men stood bending over a toilet, watching the water go clockwise around the bowl, just as impressed as you've ever seen. I told him I would take it. And he said, well, that's fine. Do you got the money? I had cash. I gave him the cash. Before I handed it to him and let go of it, I said, sir, I've bought things in different states before. And there are different laws when it comes to titles. You might not have to have a title for this here, but I have to have one in Northwest Florida. He said, title, title. He looked back to the porch where his family was sitting, and he said, do we have an official title on this thing? And one of the boys yelled out, yeah, we do, Daddy. It's called Lady Lucy of the Crescent City. And he tapped his gun on his holster and looked me dead in the eye, and I said, that works for me. I hopped into the truck, and I tugged Lady Lucy across two states. And somewhere around Mississippi, Carrier, Mississippi, I heard a loud, loud pop, which was loud enough to drown out Conway Twitty's masterpiece, A Tiger in Them Tight-Fitting Jeans. And I looked into my side mirror, and I saw a grand display of black rubber serenading itself across four lanes of traffic. And I felt the steering wheel jolt and move. I knew that I'd had a blowout, and I tried to muscle the steering wheel to the right side of the highway without a tire. When I got to the shoulder, I walked out, and I looked at the tires, and I just about had a meltdown. I just couldn't believe things were going as badly as they had been going. I decided to make a phone call. I reached into my pocket and I removed my cell phone and I looked at the the battery life. I decided that this would be my one and only phone call because I hadn't charged my phone in a full day. I dialed the number and I heard my wife answer and all I heard was hello. And I threw my phone into the woods as hard as I could and I began walking back to the city. While I walked, I thought to myself about the old days and the things my mother must have struggled through and what that meant for her. She was a young woman when my father died. I never thought about how young she was until that day, until I was walking toward a destination unknown that was a lot like my mother's life. She raised us walking forward toward a destination unknown. While I was walking, a highway patrolman cruised up beside me, and he kicked open the door. He said, what are you out here doing, son? And I said, I'm just out here for a little bit of exercise. He said, hop in. I did. He drove me back to the scene of the accident. We grabbed one of the tires, and he drove me into town. He took me to a tire place that had stacks of black tires, There was a man sitting in the back of a garage with a monosyllabic name on his shirt embroidered like a Bob or a Lou or a Joe or a Ted. He had a wad of chewing tobacco in his lip, which was roughly the size of a softball, and there were flies swarming around his sweaty ball cap. 
I rolled the tire into his shop and he looked at it and he said, 30 foot FEMA trailer. And I said, you're close, has a working toilet. (laughs) He said, I got plenty of them. And he walked me to the other side. He showed me the tires. He said, let's go fix this thing up. He threw them into the back seat of his tow truck. He drove me out to the scene of the accident. We refitted the tires onto the ambulatory FEMA trailer. I reached for my wallet and I said, how much? And he said, you say this thing has a working toilet, right? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, then it's no charge. Anybody who would do something for his mama like this deserves a hand up. I got into my truck, and I was armed with the knowledge that my father had told me long, long ago, and he had gotten this knowledge from his grandfather long, long ago, and he had gotten this knowledge from his grandfather long, long ago. And that is the expression, once you have reached the worst moment of your life, look around you, because it cannot get any worse than that. It's only uphill after that. Well, that's wonderful. I knew that I had just experienced the worst thing anyone could possibly experience. What else was there? And so while I drove, you can imagine my surprise when I heard horns honking, blaring, and I heard the skid marks of an entire transfer truck. And I looked into my rearview mirror and I saw a white FEMA trailer door floating across the median catching the wind and sailing like a helicopter into the next lane and being smashed by a Mack truck. It was smashed so hard that it bent the door into a semi-wing, which caught the wind even more effectively than it had before, and it spun through the median again into my lane. And I did what any sensible person would do. I just kept on driving. I drove and I set my FEMA trailer up on an overgrown lot that was overgrown with blackberries and cahaba lilies. I set it up and I painted several tires blue and embedded them half into the ground and filled them with dirt. These would be my mother's planters. My mother is a voracious gardener. If you gave her a handful of corn seeds, she could toss them right in the middle of the Monroe County Courthouse right here, and you could see corn sprout from the aisle. But nothing is as stellar as her tomatoes. Her tomatoes are heirloom tomatoes with big purple stripes on them. They are award-winning. She saves the seeds every year. She does vicious battle with the local wildlife over the rights to her tomatoes, namely the squirrels. The squirrels will fight her tooth and nail for those tomatoes. And when she walks out of her trailer in the mornings and she sees those tomatoes with little bite marks on them, she will say words that I've never heard my mother use before. Four-letter words beginning with the sixth letter of the alphabet. But my mother has a weapon in her arsenal which dates back to her granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy. We all carry things, I think, from our granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy. And this is a pesticide, a pesticide which is made of red man chewing tobacco and water, put into a spritzer bottle and sprayed on the tomatoes. And if you visit her house late in the evening, you can look high up into the treetops and you can see the squirrels reclining and the branches spitting. 
She lived in that FEMA trailer for a long time. She had hung drapes on the windows, which were made from lace, from recycled tablecloths, from the thrift store. She had a quilt on her bed, which was made from blue jeans that I had given her that I'd grown out of. She had saved these blue jeans through the years and cut them into fine little squares and sewn them together and thrown them on her camper queen bed. And the quilt itself weighed roughly 600 pounds. She made throw pillows out of old t-shirts. That woman could make the county morgue look inviting. She's always fit right in the crotch of my armpit, and she's looking upward at me. And there is a look that we're exchanging that cannot be translated into words. Even though I do my best to try to find the right words, the simple words, I cannot describe the look she's given me. It's a smile but it has mournfulness within it. It's a smile which communicates some of the hard things we've been through, but it's a smile which is only expressing hope. It's a, it's a smile that says, I'm here for you, damn it. No matter what things might come down the pipe, I'm here for you. And that's family. And that's about all I care about in this life, is family. But then I'm lying to you. Because I also care a great deal for FEMA trailers with working toilets. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sean of the South podcast. Today I've been your host, Sean Dietrich, and it has been a pleasure. The music you hear behind me comes from the Mid-City Aces here in New Orleans, led by 18-year-old accordion man Cameron Dupuy, his father Michael Dupuy on guitar, and Gina Forsyth on the fiddle. You can find more out about them at midcityaces.com. Their music is fresh, bold, acoustic, Cajun music at its purest. If you want to find out any more about what I do, you can go to seanofthesouth.com and drop me a line while you're there. I love to hear from my friends. And speaking of friends... Friends, I love you, and I hope you find someone else to love today. Adios. Adios.